Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, you're listening to Why Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And if, and if our voices don't sound familiar, it's because we're brand new. And this is the first episode of season four of Why Food. Uh, Patrick, your beloved former host, has moved on to more exciting, new exciting adventures. And uh, Jenny and I are really thrilled to be here with our first guest of the season, uh, Devika Kumar. Hi. So we thought we would just kick things off with a little bit of introduction of ourselves and who we are and why we're going to be hosting this podcast. And then we'll get to Devika's story, which is really fascinating. And we're really excited to, to have her here today. I guess I'll start. So, hey, everyone. I'm Jenny Dorsey. Um, I'm a chef here in New York City. I used to be in management consulting, went to get my MBA, realized I was hiding under lots of piles of expensive denim and other clothing, and decided to go back to culinary school, become a chef, and spend some time finding myself in the food industry. Uh, Now I run a pop-up series named Wednesdays and also have been finding new ways to fuse food with emerging tech. And uh, my name is Ethan Frisch. I'm the founder of a direct trade spice company called Burlap and Barrel. We work with small spice farms all around the world to source really interesting, beautiful spices. Uh, Prior to this, I was an international aid worker. I lived in Afghanistan for a couple of years. I worked in the Middle East. Um, And before that, I I had worked in restaurants. I was a pastry chef. I had an activist ice cream company. Um, so my career path, I think, like most of the people we're going to be talking to this season and, and in keeping with the Y food approach, has been in and out of food and, and complicated and disappointing and exciting and ups and downs. And, and that's, uh, that's All the goodness of real life. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going to introduce our, our inaugural guest for season four of Y food, Devika Kumar. Uh, she is currently with Invest Hospitality, which is the Joel Robuchon uh, restaurant group and, and has been instrumental in the opening of the new Joel Robuchon Atelier uh, in Meatpacking in New York City. Um, but prior to that, she worked with Fresh Direct, she worked with Witchcraft, and before getting into food, uh, worked in banking and, and had a realization uh, around the time when her first son was born uh, about wanting to, to change careers to work in food. So actually, we're going to kick off the interview right there. Devika, tell us a little bit about that that moment when you realized um, you needed you needed a career in food. So um, I'll take you back uh, eleven years. Mm-hmm. I had a baby, was holding the baby, and it occurred to me that here I was in America. So I come from India. I'm an immigrant. Um, what was I going to give of myself to this child? And what I really wanted to do was give him some piece of my history and heritage. And I'm thinking to myself, is it going to be language? And I was like, mm, everyone speaks English. Is it going to be religion? Really, that didn't have a good ring to it, and it had to be food. 
Um, so I thought to myself, you know, so, okay, so I want to give this baby um, a love of Indian food and good food. How am I going to do that? Um, I didn't know how to cook. I'd been raised in a household where um, my mom did the cooking. We had cooks um, and really had grown up learning how to shop for ingredients, but had never really cooked. Um, so this, you know, looking at this baby that I wanted to give not only a, a love of food and, and learning actually was part of it as well, um, led me down a path to, uh, to start cooking. And it, it involved a lot of phone calls to my mother in India, my grandmother, uh, watching how friends cooked. That's really how my journey started. Can you tell us about some of those conversations? I mean, I know many grandmothers' mothers, their recipes are um, vague at best. Um, how did you get that technique down, you know, across, you know, overseas phone calls? Um, they're not there to oversee you, but you remember what it tasted like when you were young and trying to recreate that. So in India, they have this concept called andaz, in which is, you know, measure. So people, you know, it's a pinch of that and a pinch of this, and no one knows what that is, really. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it took really following my grandmother around with some measuring spoons and cups and, and a notebook. And I have all of those sort of faithfully kept away. Lots of photographs as well. And I slowly learned to cook. I became a better and better cook. It took me on a search for ingredients. I realized that the best food comes from really good ingredients. And given that my family is mostly vegetarian and we cook vegetarian food at home, I was in search of good produce, which I found at a local store in Hoboken called Sopsies. And they have, an, they have an amazing produce display. They go to the farmer's market. And of course, that led me to the farmer's market. Farmer's market led me to farms. So in, in the few years that my children were growing up, um, I started you know, really searching for ingredients and going to farms on the weekends became our version of Disneyland. Like we were, you know, picking the first strawberries of the season, the first blueberries, and we still do it. We've done it for years and years. And was that an activity that your kids enjoyed or, or was that a, a chore? Mom's taking us to a farm again. <laughs> like what, how did they, how did they feel about that and how have their feelings changed? You know, they really get into it. You'd be surprised. The strawberries are available only for one week in, uh, in this area. And we, and we, and the family's all over it. Um, I've got pictures, you know, documenting our strawberry visits from every year. And uh, what about cooking? Have your kids learned? They have, have learned, learned to, cook? to cook, yes, yes. Um, so now they, they, they do make things of their own. Um, it's it's a really nice to watch their engagement with food. What are their, their favorite dishes to cook? Or maybe what are your favorite dishes that they cook? What's uh, What are your favorite things to eat that they cook? You know, so I come from, I grew up in a family that um, comes from tea. And uh, so my, my older one now can make a perfect cup of tea. And I'm very precise about how we, how we do it. What's what's your so the secret method? recipe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell us your, your secret recipe. You won't tell one anybody. cup of filtered water, half a cup of um, non and non homogenized. Very important. A hundred percent grass milk, and we discovered that you know grass milk tastes the best. Um, has to be whole milk, and then you you cook this this milk and and water with a bunch of spices. And Ethan has some of the best cardamom that I've seen. True fact. Um, and you throw in you know ginger, and we found that organic Peruvian ginger, very precise again, tastes really good here. And all all freshly ground, so in a mortar and pestle before you throw it into the tea. And you let this cook for a little while. Comes to boil. You throw in your tea leaves. Tea leaves have to be from my family's estate in Assam. It's called Boisahabi. And I'm shouting this out because I couldn't find tea leaves like this. So my dad has to FedEx them to me from oh India. <laughs> I'm so obsessed. Um, and then, of course, sugar. And a nice brown sugar. Um, 
you told us a little bit about this recipe and other recipes that you were keeping as you were learning, as your children are learning. Um, can you kind of talk about that journey of learning to write about food, also photographing food, um, photographing food, sorry, I can enunciate, um, and you know, how you started doing that as well? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I started cooking for the children, and I was, of course, writing these recipes down in notebooks. Um, I had one child, and I had the next. And while I had my first child, you know, what had happened was I, for some reason, found myself unable to return to work. I had just finished an MBA, and I had worked in banking. But somehow, when I held this baby and, and had all these feelings, I just wasn't able to go back to work immediately. I just had to be home. Um, and I'm sure the mothers can relate to that feeling as well. Um, but then I, a year in, I started feeling like I had to do something. I tried to start a business making baby linens. The baby linens were handcrafted. Um, they were telling the story of of a child's first experiences. So some of the designs were about, you know, when a child first goes to a farm or when he wakes up and sees what his neighborhood is like. Um, and the, the, the idea was that they would be handcrafted in India and I would bring them here. The business never it took off in the way I expected it to, primarily because I couldn't find anyone to make these blankets for me in the way that I wanted. Um, but along the way, um, I then was pregnant again. I had was about to have a second baby, and I found myself feeling fairly lost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one doesn't go back to work after doing an MBA. It's an unusual choice. And then you wake up, and you said, I had, you know, I did all this work in banking, and I'm supposed to be doing something, and it's, it can't be just raising children. It has mm-hmm. to be more. And so as a result of that, I ended up at a workshop um, in Hoboken. And there's this lady uh, called Sally Robertson. And I have to give her a shout out because she's wonderful. Um, She had these mothers there. And um, I don't exactly remember what we talked about. But later on, she and I met. And she said, Devika, what is it that you like to do? And I said, Sally, I think I like to drink tea. I like to talk. (laughs) (laughs) And and it just popped up. I I like to write. I have these notebooks that I've been scribbling in. And, And she said you know, that sounds like an idea. Why don't you explore that more? And she gave me some ideas. She said, wake up every morning, write a few pages. And and she said she believes in a lady called Julie Cameron who has a book called The Artist's Way. And and that book, um, you know, recommends that you wake up and write a few pages every morning, just free-flowing. And that really helps the the, the creative mind, so to speak. And she also said, you know, and explore the writing interest. Go take a class. And so I found a class, and it just happened to be a food writing class at NYU. So it wasn't, you, you weren't looking for a food writing class. I wasn't just... looking. <laughs> it, just, it was the writing class that was available. And uh, I remember starting out in the class, there were 15 people. I, we ended up with three at the end, and I still haven't figured out why. But I remember being glued to my seat and sort of really enjoying it. Um, the, the author taught us some um, techniques about how to write. Um, she, she said, you know, when you, have, when you write about food, you should speak it out loud and then you should write it down by hand then you should read it out loud and then you should go and type it and that was her process of editing and that's something that stuck with me I just find that you know I still carry around a notebook and I've done it for years now so whenever you know inspiration strikes um, which is you know really going back to an Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat Pray Love idea where she says you know if you have an idea and you have to catch it it's like coming out of the air you have to catch it and write it down it'll be gone um, and so that sort of, I think all of this writing, this sort of self-conversation had now put, put me on a path where it was becoming clearer that, you know, food was somewhat of my destiny. Um, I also took a photography class, took a lot of pictures of food. Um, and out of that class, someone had said, you know, blogging might be a good idea. So I started putting all those recipes up on a blog. 
and I now have about a hundred recipes on there. I haven't written recently as much, but it really, you know, it really brought together all my interests uh, in in a place. Um, this blog really fueled me. Um, it sounds like that that experience of channeling inspiration into your writing or into your photography, the way that you talk about it, sounds a lot like the way that a lot of entrepreneurs talk about channeling an idea for a business or or making decisions, uh, building a small business from the ground up. Um, having done both of those things, uh, I don't know. Do you see connections between those two those two processes? How did how did your experience as an entrepreneur and your experience as a writer or a photographer, how do they, they talk to each other? You know, so I've always had that instinct to be an entrepreneur and be a self-starter. And, and I've always believed that you can only do things if, that you self-start in. And that comes up again and again. What would you do that you're not paid for? What would you do anyway? What would you do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you just do it? You know, it doesn't matter. And so the blogging was something like that. It didn't really, you know, pay anything, but um, it just sort of, I just had to do it. Um, and, and again, so going down a few months later, uh, the, the younger baby was now, you know, a year, over a year old, started feeling that itch again, that, that strong desire to, to work. Um, and I remember sitting with my husband and I was saying, really need to go back to work. And, and I have a friend who said, you know, I think you would be a great business analyst. Why don't you go talk to my, my friend who's, um, and his name is Mark. He's the CEO of theladders.com. And so I went on to interview with Mark, and Mark and I had this interview, and he says, he says something that, again, would so sound familiar to you from my previous uh, comments. He said, Devika, what is it that you like to do? <laughs> <laughs> and the children are asleep, and no one's looking, and it doesn't matter what your mother thinks or, you know, wh whoever, it doesn't matter. What is it that you like to do? And I looked, look at him, and I say, I like to blog about food. <laughs> and so he says, okay, this interview is over. You've got to go work in food. And he's remained a friend and a mentor, and you know, we still we talk quite frequently. Um, but really, that's where it started. So the CEO of a recruitment company is telling me that I should go work in food. Now everything's coming together. I've got to go do it. Um, so when you decided to jump into food, you're like, okay, I don't know much about food besides, you know, I'm, I'm blogging, I'm photographing. Like, how did you make that first initial leap? Um, how, who did you talk to? How did you find the people to talk to and get them to talk to you too? Yes. So one of the things that Mark did for me is he introduced me to his good friend who um, at the time was CEO of the Batali Group and a uh, friend introduced me to someone else. And I started having these meetings where I'd pick up the phone. And just call people that I knew um, would have a connection to someone else that worked in food. And I, I did use my business school network quite effectively. Um, you know, I, I'm really touched because after many years of not working, there were still people who, who took my call, you know, uh, yeah. they wanted to work in food and they just took my call. And so there was a large number of people that I spoke to. Um, in any company, any product that I found interesting, I would try to see if I could find a way to talk to people um, in that company. Just curious, what are some of the initial questions that you're asking them? Since you were at this point soul searching, you're trying to find where your place would be in food. So it's not like, you know, you were going there asking about this specific role or anything. Just kind of well, how do you feel about food? Like, what, what would you say? I always wanted to know their story. And I wanted to know, of course, I wanted to know if there's something I could do for them. Um, and and really, I, maybe I was just begging for a job. You know, <laughs> Someone just hire me because, you know, you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I could be passionate about food, but like a lot of other people, I learn by doing. There's no way that I could do anything without actually doing it. So it was important for me to start somewhere. And I did get a job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there was um, a, a CFO uh, at Witchcraft that had been to my business school. And he's also remained a friend and a mentor um, who 
he introduced me to their CEO, hired me to be a business analyst. It was a fairly unstructured, you know, vague type of position. Um, but and then I spent a year at Witchcraft, which, you know, the sandwich shop, um, they had about 14 locations at the time. It was a, a consumer brand that I recognized. I loved the quality of the food. Um, it was an offshoot of fine dining, but really more accessible. And you told us before, like your favorite job or part of the job at uh, Witchcraft was being able to talk to your customers in person, which is something you weren't able to do in your past career, um, and get to know what they liked, what they didn't like, and being able to hand back that kind of feedback to the management. Can you tell us more about that and kind of the storytelling aspect of that? So um, Witchcraft's headquarters were on 20th Street. It's a little, looks like a little townhouse and it has three levels and the topmost level has has a few rooms up there, which were our offices. And so I got to walk through the store every morning, you know, test out the mood, um, see people coming in and out, see what people bought. Um, of course, I looked at the data, but I also had a chance to talk to consumers. And I did this, um, this self-created uh, you know, uh, project where I talked to 350 customers and I wrote down everything that they told me um, and put it into the form. It was sort of like a semi-survey, but it was really where were people eating? What were they doing um, you know, uh, during the week for lunch? Uh, what what are the, some of the things they liked on the menu? Um, what recommendations do they have for us? And I brought all this feedback back to um, the team. But I really enjoyed speaking to the customers and, and learning about, you know, what my perception was and what 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 was really happening from from their point of view. Like to me, witchcraft was an everyday sandwich place, but it turned out it was much more of a treat meal for people. It was mm-hmm. some something that they did occasionally and not every day. For instance, that was one of my learnings. What what prompted you to? embark on that project to have those 350 conversations? You know, I felt that our sales could have been a lot higher than they were, mm-hmm. and they were inconsistent across the stores. Um, I also noticed in the area that I was, there are a lot of other quick service restaurants. And I, to me, it felt like they had far more people going through the doors. So trying to figure out how can we how can we improve the business? Where are there opportunities? So that's really what was driving me. I think it's pretty incredible that you, you know, came into a business that was established. Um, it's your first role within food and you were such a self-starter. You pur- pursued this project on your own and was able to hand over. I mean, you mentioned um, some of these great tools of doing half uh, half sandwiches and half soups, rotating the soups more often, all of these learnings that management would have found otherwise. It's very much an entrepreneurial spirit within a big organization, bigger organization. But I have to say that my learnings didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> so I handed, you know, all my findings and I don't think we didn't really, we didn't do much about them, which was one of the reasons why I left Witchcraft um, a year in. Um, I'd had a great time. Um, I'd learned that I really love food. You know, I had a co-worker who's now at Pratamanja and she and I, you know, sat next to each other. And it was just, it was in many ways sort of, it felt you know, this is where I want to be. I want to be in food. It makes sense. Um, and I ended up at Fresh Direct. What was interesting about Fresh Direct was that, you know, um, and there again, I'd done something similar. Started, you know, found this company very interesting because they had trucks all over and the trucks said on the side that we work with 60 farms and, you know, yeah. and the word farm always has a nice, like a bell goes off in my head because <laughs> I've been doing all those farm visits and continue to do them. I'm just like, I really want for a comp- you know, to work for a company that works for farms. And, uh, and I started asking everyone, do you know anyone that works at Fresh Direct? And I found a friend of a friend who had interviewed there that knew the recruiter. Um, I'd also um, heard our CEO speak, Jason Ackerman, who's an incredible speaker. You know, he was presenting somewhere. I'd gone to hear him speak. I exchanged a few words with him. And in my mind, it was, it was made up. I really want to work for this company. 
um but it took months uh, i kept you know going back and forth because you know i wasn't a finance person didn't want to be a finance person mm-hmm. anymore didn't really fit into marketing didn't have any merchandising experience where was i going to go um and i have to say that you know when i started back in food i did take you know like i started a salary that was even lower than where i was you know when i started in banking and uh, and it's just but it, it really didn't matter but they couldn't find a place to fit me the only good the, the good news was that because i'd worked at witchcraft for a year and they felt that i was committed to food so the recruiter um bless his soul uh, you know returned every email every month i'd write to him and after i think 4 or 5 months he said dev i think i might have something for you amazing so he brought me in and they hired me as a pricing analyst and what do i know about pricing but again i was going to grocery stores and pricing everything they had and comparing our prices to them to see if we were competitive and i really enjoyed it too so one of the learnings that i had was actually any job in food is never too big or too small it's always been interesting um and then one day i remember standing and uh, the co-founder david mackenney came by and you know I, i knew him but didn't really know him and he said you're the new pricing analyst and i said yes and he said oh so do you like to do pricing is that what you <laughs> like to do and i said uh what i really like to do is visit farms and i don't know why that popped out of my mouth i had uh, no idea uh-huh. about you know fresh strike did say that they source from farms but in the pricing function i hadn't and been a bit far removed from from farms um and then he looked at me and and later on he found me a job uh which is to work with farms <laughs> in our produce team it was a dream job i was there for almost 5 years uh working directly with farms um almost the entire time and i had a great time doing it it seems like you've you've done an incredible job of of by by accident or on purpose finding jobs in different aspects of of food and building out this very holistic understanding Um did you go into your career in food with that intention to work in different roles and understand different aspects of the food industry or is that something that happened naturally or yeah, accidentally? Yeah, I, I don't think that I knew what I was doing. It's a little bit of a where people want to put me and what they think I can do and want what, what then ends up happening. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, in the last 6 months that I've been uh, opening uh, a new restaurant with the Robuchon team, um what's happened is that I've gotten a little away from the actual sourcing and storytelling behind the food. and it's tugging me back mm-hmm. and so i'm looking forward now to a career that brings me back to closer you know closer contact with some of that that storytelling and uh, and being able to um, go back to the farm and and source um so yeah so i feel like there's you know what what my skills are and what i think i can do of course there's many things that i can do from um from you know i would say a financial analysis or on a numbers perspective but my heart always seems to tug me back in a different direction. And why why is that storytelling and that sourcing so important to you? I feel like there's not enough st- good stories told about food and I don't know why I feel this but uh you know it's like when you look at all the marketing that exists in the world I see a lot of products being marketed that don't don't deserve that airspace oh, yeah. and that completely drives me insane. So I mean I want to make it the biggest case for you know people eating eating better and that's you know going back to whether it's my children um or I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm the best eater but <laughs> but I passionately care about the cause of people eating well uh, more fruits and vegetables you know things that are more natural not processed um and I truly truly mean you know when you come to my house like I've waged a battle we do very little cereal or orange juice and 
even granola bars on my on my bad list <laughs> you know it, it just want the children to eat the nuts and eat the fruit and and you'll see displays of fruit on the counter you know um so so the children grab them and eat them and um are they uh, there must be some pushback, I would imagine. You have, a, a, what, an 8-year-old and 11-year-old, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. So my older one's obsessed with soda. You know? <laughs> and I don't know what to do about it. And, you know, anyway. He, and on all things that are beverage at the moment. It is sweet and sugary and beverage. And his new thing is chocolate. And, Naturally. Um, but there are yeah. good varieties of that as well. I'm encouraging dark chocolate, you know, cacao, uh, no yeah. sugar, yeah. <laughs> all sorts of things like that. Um, back to kind of the storytelling with farms, though, um, you launched that Lancaster like co-op farm boxes at Fresh Direct. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. I mean, I'm personally a customer and a big fan. so Sure, that's my baby and something I love to talk about. So um, I think a couple of years into Fresh Direct and, you know, they trained me to be a buyer um, and then move up from there to really understand produce in its, in its uh, entirety. But along the way, um, because I was doing a lot of local sourcing from farms, and we have a lot of local produce on our site. Um, there was a business that came up for sale where someone called me and said, you know, we've got a farm share box business that we'd like to sell to you. Mm -hmm. and, he, and they said it's doing really well. There are people lining up outside our door for these farm boxes. I remember thinking, why don't we have something like that? You know, um, and CSA is really, in, in theory, um, people buy uh, an, an ownership in, in a farm. Um, and they get part of the produce. Um, and it's, it's not the most convenient model. It's, I think it's great, but it's not the most convenient model. Um, not everyone's able to do that. You don't have access to a farm. You're not able to go to the farm. Maybe you can't pick up. You can't pick up at, this, at the time, the designated time. Yep. So wouldn't it make sense to have a, lo a truly local box that's brought to your home? Mm -hmm. um, and it's convenient. You, you get your local produce. And so I remember putting those, those ideas together and saying, fine, you know, we, sh we should try this out. But of course, I had no idea how this would do, you know. Yeah. You, part of, you know, Fresh Rex charm is that you're, in a sense, building your own box. You're choosing what to put in it. Why would someone want a box with 10 local vegetables that they have no idea what they're getting? Mysterious vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, the program was a runaway success. Absolutely. And I still remember day one, I had uh, 10 boxes and I'm watching the computer and I'm like, are these going to sell? Am I going to have to throw these all out? Um, and within, I think, 30 minutes, they were all gone. And I was calling uh, Casey from Lancaster Farm Fresh Cooperative, who's a good friend. Um, and I was saying, Casey, I need more. Send me more. Send me hundreds. And, and now we have a really strong, steady program. And it really, I think it's become sort of something that defines what local is. Mm -hmm. um, because it's a truly, you know, it's just a local box. And, and you know it's, it's been harvested a day or two before and, and, and at your door. What do you think uh, was the cause of that success of that, of that box? I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you've seen farmer's markets get enormous popularity. I think not everyone can get to the farmer's market. The vegetables that, you know, Casey sort of hand selects and puts in this box, they, uh, there's great variety. The quality is fantastic. Um, they're the local, organic. I can personally attest to, I bought a box, like, I think two weeks ago, and the kohlrabi in it. I always salt-bake kohlrabi, and it's like, it was the best kohlrabi I've ever eaten, so... I think that really returned like your customers for sure. I'm so happy to hear that. And we did a second box with the Hepworth sisters who are, uh, you know, again, very dear friends. They're uh, in the Hudson Valley. These women grow the best tomatoes and the best peppers, um, lovely eggplant and all sorts of other things, including um, 
your favorite husk cherries. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, so these programs have actually done surprisingly well for us. I mean, I am really not the customer for them because I've got children and need to know what I'm cooking for them. Um, and you know, and I've always felt fresh direct. It was, I was there for a while and um, ran their produce business. It's really a, a mother's answer, you know. Um, you want to feed your kids lots of fruits and vegetables. You want to, you know, you want the lovely non-homogenized organic milk. You want really good eggs, and it's, it's I feel like it's you know, um, it's a service that I used and continue to use, and you know, uh, I have very warm feelings in my heart about having worked for them um, for that time period. Um, and uh, and uh, what, so what was it like to leave? You had such a great time there. It sounds like you you were working with amazing farms. Um, what was the decision like? Why did you make the decision? And it was the hardest decision I've ever made. And I told my team that uh, I you know uh, it was it took me. I, I feel they had become family. Um, that's what those you know. I feel like any perishable food produce type business ends up feeling like a family because yeah. there's so much that happens. It's twenty four seven. It's around the clock. You're really depending on each other. There's a ball that you're passing from one to the next. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the cost of dropping the ball is really letting your team member down. So the team had really grown to have a lot of ownership and also be very accountable to each other. So it was like leaving my family. And uh, yeah. And the decision really was driven by, by the fact that I, need, I felt like I needed more experiences in food. So here I was at Fresh Direct. Over time, you know, I'd met a lot of growers, brought a lot of growers into our fold. Um, had a lot of fun doing it, told a lot of stories. I just felt I needed to spread my wings a little. Mm -hmm. um, and fine dining in New York, really, I feel like it's sort of like being in high fashion. Like the <laughs> chefs sort of set the trend, and I wanted to see how the trend is set. Uh, I was, uh, you know, hungry for that experience. Um, I did go from, you know, produce to looking at or managing my chef's pantry, which... Uh, you know, had some 2,000 odd items, you know, of, of many, many different things. I didn't even know that there were, you know, eight types of butter that a restaurant <laughs> could cook with or, you know, 20 different types of oils, pistachio oil, hazelnut oil, you name it. So I've now really widened my food repertoire, which has been exciting. There was also a desire to do more business development. Um, this group was going to be opening um, a number of restaurants. Um, I also wanted to see what it felt like to procure other goods and services and not just food. So I did all of that and helped with the opening of the restaurant. Great. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Devika Kumar from Invest Hospitality and all kinds of other amazing, uh, amazing roles. Um, yeah, check back with us in a minute. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. 
feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. We're here with Devika Kumar of Invest Hospitality and a variety of other amazing roles that she's held in the food industry. We just were wrapping up about her time at Fresh Direct. And now uh, with all the supply chain knowledge, the storytelling, working with these farmers, uh, I wanted to kind of speed ahead to what your some plans for the future. You said you are going to be helping out with your family's tea business back in India. It's something you grew up with but haven't, hasn't been involved uh, with yet. So can you tell us more about that and how that conversation came about? Sure. So um, recently, you know, I've been uh, at the Robuchon restaurant for, it's been about five months. And, uh, and I found myself in a role where I was doing um sourcing but really very much on the on the back end it wasn't didn't have an opportunity to tell stories about what i was sourcing mm -hmm. and and i don't know why this has become such a theme where i feel like i need to communicate with my customer about what i'm selling and why and have that dialogue mm -hmm. that um, i started feeling like the role maybe wasn't a great fit for me um and you know i'm gonna quote oprah on this she always <laughs> says uh there's no th th there's no missteps. You're all, you're going in the same direction. You're just taking a detour, and, uh, and then sometimes you need to do things uh, differently to find out what it is that you really care about. And Absolutely. so, what I found was that that ability to talk to my customers directly about about food and where it comes from, you know, became, has become more important. And so, w one evening I was um, talking to my dad, and and I said, you know, I I think I'm not I'm not enjoying this anymore. And he said. Well, would you want to come work for me? <laughs> I've just been waiting for that. <laughs> so, you know, I've grown up in the tea business. So, you know, my, my dad uh, was, you know, um, in Darjeeling. Uh, he went to school there. Um, he's been in the tea trade. He says tea runs through his veins. Uh, my great-grandfather bought some plantations, I believe, from the British as they were leaving. I don't know the full details of these stories. Uh, they seem to be shrouded in, in mystery and, you know, uh, family lore. Um, and now, and my family's essentially been a tea family, um, and so they call themselves, in, based out of Calcutta in India. Um, of course, I grew up visiting the tea plantations, um, and, and my dad's, through the ups and downs of the business, has been fairly stubborn about, you know, remaining attached to, to, to the business, and, and I'm fourth generation, my, my son would be fifth. So th there's a lot of history there, um, and we've, somehow in the back of our minds, we've been fairly reluctant to want to give it up. So when dad said this, for some reason, all these light bulbs again went off in my head. I, you know, I'm, th I'm thinking back to my produce experience. All the growers that I met, generally, these fam farms had been in their families for generations. You know, they were second, third, and never seemed to be easy, but they all seemed to have done it out of keeping the legacy alive and to, um, and, and to, and to carry it forward. So it also seemed that these businesses are, you know, complex and hard to manage. But they seem to stick with it. Um, I had gone to a, a produce uh, a conference last year, which was focused on women in, in produce, and also one that was um, uh, about organic produce farming last year, where um, our, our co-founder David McInerney was the, was the um, the main speaker. And both these conferences, sort of one one sort of really highlighted to me how how much produce businesses are family businesses. Mm -hmm. 
And um, and the second one was about you know what organic means. And and I'm bringing in the topic of organic because when my father was speaking to me, he he suddenly dropped this this thing where he said, you know, and the plantation is going to be organic and possibly. <laughs> A fairly large, you know, maybe the largest organic plantation in India that that uh, grows as as I'm black tea. Just casual. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I was like, wow. And one thing I've always known is that this plantation has the really, really great quality tea, and and, and the manager on the farm has has practiced very unusual things. And and I didn't really know about any of these, but I'd observe it. But we've got cows. Um, so, Uncle, what are you doing with the cows? You know, they produce manure, and I'd see someone taking the manure and mixing water into it by hand, and then they would be sprayed over the tea bushes. And be like, wow, um, you do that. And then recently I saw pictures of, 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 of worms and, you know, for mm-hmm. the soil, which, you know, again, from my, from my studying for that organic produce conference last year, I'd realized that, you know, composting, vermiculture, these are things that good organic farmers do. Um, essential to soil health. And I learned a lot about soil and... Um, and so realize that well, then we may be on to something. Not only do we have great tasting tea, we've also got something that's going to be organic and are going to have large volumes of organic. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, that's the think, story. <laughs> do you think those are related? Do you, do you, have you experienced a change in the flavor of the tea? Or what's the impact of, of, that, of those organic practices on, on the drinker's experience? So I was saying before, this, I feel like this tea tastes very good because the farm has already been practicing these organic methods. There's apparently been no fertilizers in, you know, used in the last few years that are chemical or pesticides for over 10 years. Um, so as I was saying, I, couldn't, I have not found tea of this quality in, in the United States when I bought it. And some of it could be the freshness, the fact that my father's actually sending me the, the tea in, you know, in some stall, small installments. But um, I think there is a connection between organic and flavor often. Um, I've seen it a lot in the vegetables for sure. Mm-hmm. Like the vegetables seem to taste better. Than, you know, um, I've also seen it with berries. With berries, it might mm-hmm. also be, you know, maybe the plant has struggled a little bit more. Or maybe it's a better farmer. Like generally, the organic farmer is thought of as the better farmer as well. Um, but I feel like, in, in general, if you don't have an organic product that tastes really great too, I feel like then you know you s- sort of have lost it. It's organic, it's great, it's great for the soil, but then you're not you're not really um, getting the consumers in as you'd want. So I feel like it really has to. However, we do it, it has to go hand in hand. One of the reasons we asked you uh, to come as a guest on our, our first podcast, uh, or the first that we're hosting in, in the Y Food um, lifespan, uh, was that you're on the cusp of this, of this transition, um, which I think is something that a lot of the Y Food listeners are thinking about for themselves or have experienced for themselves. Um, what does it feel like to be in a, in a job that, that has been fulfilling in, in a lot of ways and challenging in a lot of ways? What does it feel like to be looking at this this new uh, this new adventure, this new challenge, this new project, working with your family, but in a totally new area that that it sounds like their business has not gone in before? Um, tell us how how this feels. I know it's it feels like an adventure, and I think I'm always up for a new adventure. Mm-hmm. Which uh, and and in food, I sort of feel I can I can't say that I've made it. You know, if I yeah. if I told you that I'd made it, I would be too comfortable, and I would uh, you know uh, I would have devoid myself of new challenges and experiences but I feel like one has to keep keep learning more if it's not one thing it has to be the next so 
What do you anticipate as being uh, some of your biggest challenges coming up for you, Um, whether it's uh, learning more about tea, learning more about your family stories, or you talked about the farm is going organic. Um, There's also a lot of international regulations. Like, what do you anticipate being the big hurdles? Sure. Um, I can frankly say that I know nothing about tea at this moment, (laughs) besides being a chai drinker. Um, And I'm really looking forward to learning more, um, diving into it from from starting from the farming, like what what's what's coming out of the soil to all the way uh, the, the consumer's cup and how people consume tea. And I'm looking forward to having all those conversations and uh, positioning this product in the right place. And, you know, initially, I think it will be a wholesale business. So it will go into more recognizable brands. Maybe it, there becomes a brand over time. But at the moment, I'm just thinking about the estate and, and how we can reach consumers. Uh, so you, you tell the story of the of the of the farm but at the same time you also um, you, you also bring in consumers um you talked a little bit about how um their the tea a business that your family has is there it's a commodity right now and they're also um they're in the commodity business but they also want to branch into kind of these like special attention business development more um smaller stores and how you'll be heading up some of that um can you tell us a little bit about your plans for that yes yeah, so there's really two sides to the business one is a it's a larger maybe i would say more commodity business um where it's more volumes of tea and then you have more of a specialty business uh which smaller quantity is higher quality um, that, that go into more special retail channels um, and brands. So I'm, I'm hoping to do more of that where, uh, you know, it's, I'm supplying to um, a specialty brand that, you know, which, of course, dialogues with its consumers and knows what that consumer is looking for and has uh, an ability to educate the customer as well. Um, I, I don't know that people know that single estate origin tea uh, is something that they should care about and, and really depending on these brands to educate the customer. So... And and on the totally other end of the tea supply chain, what do you think of the proliferation of, of chai <laughs> beverages in the quote-unquote mainstream uh, in the U.S.? You know, so I, I love the fact that people want chai. I just don't think there's any real chai out there. Yeah. And I was saying this before. Um, so in India, you know, around every corner you'll have a tea shop and there's a man with a kettle whose kettle is bubbling, you know, 24 hours a day. The tea is really made with that water, milk, sugar, and spices combination and you can get a little cup you know and it's very refreshing so i'm hoping that that type of tea culture becomes more prevalent and i keep thinking you know starbucks did it with coffee why doesn't yeah. someone do it with tea it really has to happen why do you think that is why hasn't it happened i don't know <laughs> i don't have an answer it's waiting for you <laughs> <laughs> um i'd like to to talk a little bit more about something you mentioned earlier in the interview um not knowing how to cook when you came to the u.s and then having to learn teaching yourself uh, getting recipes from your from your mother and your grandmother. Can you uh, let us listen in on one of those phone conversations? What what was that like when you called up and said, uh, "How do I cook this basic thing that I've that I'm craving, but I've never been able to cook for myself?" You know, there's been many many of those phone conversations, <laughs> and it's really been and and, I, and my my grandmother passed away last August, and I'm really sad because even now I'm like I didn't get that last recipe, and you know, and she's gonna you know, it's interesting. I love her, I love her to death. I really miss her. But I really, those recipes live in in me and that's why she lives in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that's really important to me. Um, the phone conversations, 
um, to be honest, a lot of them had to eventually be demonstrated. They had to be demonstrated because the, the pinches of this and that, I was often putting in teaspoonfuls. And I've chronicled this pretty well on my blog. You know, um, my husband's actually a better cook than I am, I would say. You know, and his mother's a fabulous cook who cooks for hours every day. So her being there, you know, and, and poor lady, bless her soul. You know, she she knows how, how many bags of, you know, vegetables I've dragged home from the market and asked her to make them while I could watch and learn. And, you know, so between my mother-in-law, my mother, my grandmother, I think I've, I've become a better cook. But I have to also say that whenever anyone else wants to cook, I'm more than happy to let them, you know. <laughs> I think in the end, I just I love to tell. My husband's very fond of saying this. He's like, I think you're a better writer than you are a cook, and you know. So anyway, <laughs> how do you how do you tell your kids the stories of of these family recipes? So we we try to cook them together now. Um, you know, we are coming up with a few favorite dishes, and everyone has a task. So the older one might chop something, and the baby might might start to heat the oil on the stove, and. Um, even though they're 8 and 11, I'm always anxious about the knives and then the heat. Of course. Um, just the fact that they're engaged and they usually will eat everything that they've cooked and they're pretty excited about it. Um, so I, I really love that. I love that. And even though I think I've raised some picky, somewhat picky eaters, meaning that, you know, they have a craving for something and it has to be the something and we have to make it. Um, in general, it's all natural, unprocessed. It's good food. Uh, very rarely. I mean, outside, of course, of that soda and chocolate thing I was telling you about <laughs> before. And they're eating pretty well. And that's something, you know, even when I was a fresh director, I feel really good about going into work every day. I always felt like, you know, my, my, my tagline, if I had one, was to encourage people to eat their fruits and vegetables and to eat better. I really cared about that. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. And um, thank you so much for being our very first guest. Uh, if you could just shout out to the listeners um, where to find more about your family's tea company um, and where to find you online so they can find you after this show. That'd be great. Sure. So I am on a blog called calcuttachow.com and my family's tea business. You, sorry, just spell that for us. Oh, Calcutta, C-A-L-C-U-T-T-A, Chow, C-H-O-W.com. Uh, my family's export business is called SSK Exports, but the tea plantation is called Boy Sahabi. And you might find that as a single estate origin tea in some places, and you'll probably see more of it this year. Um, is there a website where people can can we're, find out more, see some pictures of the, of no, the we're garden? No, I'm about to build it. So I'm going to India awesome. in February and uh, I'm going to take some pictures and have a, a better website with, with, with more of, of the story behind the farm. Great. We'll, we'll post an update on the Y Food page on heritageradionetwork.org to, uh, to direct people to the site when it's up and ready. That sounds great. Thank you. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, send us emails. Tell us what you think. Suggest new guests. You want to come join us? We'd love to have you. Uh, why food at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.